right, so Dave, you can start that recording after that in-house announcement here. So we've been studying Romans, and um, I'm going to do a fairly quick review. As you know, the church in, at Rome was started by Jews who migrated to Rome, um, but it would appear that the majority party there was Gentiles in this church, believers. And if you could flash back 200 years, say 200 B.C., from this point in the story, and you were told that the Jewish Messiah would, uh, the majority of the believers would be Gentiles, they would say, you're crazy. What are you talking about? How can it be that those Sabbath-breaking, um, pig-feet-eating, uh, uncircumcised heathen could come to the Lord? No one would have fathomed such. Uh, but that has been the case. The Gentiles experienced persecution from the Jews. because You can imagine that there was a lot of um, animosity between Jew and Gentile. They probably needed some attitude adjustment, for sure, uh, for both cultures to dwell in unity, which is one of the things Paul is writing about, why he's writing to both of them in this church. Since the beginning of this letter, Paul has been pressing arguments to us, making points about sin and judgment, the need for atonement, justification by faith, in Christ alone, our union with Christ, and Law and gospel, sanctification, the work of the Spirit has been so rich. And we came last week to chapter 11, and Paul is dealing with the question, has God failed Israel? Uh, Has he failed to keep his promises to Israel? He made certain promises to Abraham, the patriarchs, to David. Has he failed to keep those promises? Is he rejecting or has he rejected the ethnic Jews and the Israelite, his people, Israel? And of course, Paul's answer is no, no, no. Uh, He has not. Um, And he used himself as an exhibit A. I'm a Jew myself. There are a lot of Jews running around. There are Jews in this church even. Uh, You have them there in Rome. So today we're going to conclude the indicative section of Romans, um, and we'll move to the imperative next week. So... Um, in our passage today, Paul is going to give us a glimpse into the divine decree. He, is, uh, he doesn't always do that, uh, but he occasionally does. He's going to pull back the curtain, and we're going to see what's going on behind the scenes, if you will. Uh, for example, he does that in another place. Most notably, comes to mind Job, where in the first two chapters, he kind of tells you what's going on in heaven, where the, you know, Satan comes and... Uh, We're privy to that conversation, and Job didn't know at the time what was going on, uh, how God was bragging on him, and what was to ensue, his his suffering. And we're told uh, what happened, but Job had no idea. He had to trust in the Lord with all his understanding, and lean not on his own understanding, but trust the Lord with all his heart, as we should do. And that would have been hard, even if Job had had a peek behind the curtain, but he didn't even have that. Um, when we're in a spot like Job and um, don't have a peek behind the curtain, we need to remember that God knows what he's doing for um, if you're uh, diagnosed with cancer or we, you lose your job or your children aren't walking with you, whatever you're going through. Remember how God knows behind the scenes in, in our tr- child. Um, as, as his children. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 comes to mind, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may obey the Lord forever, um, walk in his ways. The secret things we're going to talk about today, and it's a, a, a glorious secret that God kind of lets us in on. Um, God doesn't tell us the why. He may tell us. He may never tell us the why. We don't see it, but that's why it's called faith, right? We look to the things not seen, but the things unseen in eternity. Sometimes we don't know what God is doing, but he knows what he's doing. Vast understatement. Okay, so before we get into Romans, um, let's read our text today. And let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we can understand it. Give us your spirit to 
not only understand it, but apply it correctly and most importantly, believe it and live it with all our heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Romans, I'm going to uh, skip what we read, the first part of the chapter that Kyle went over, and let's pick up right at Romans 11. And that's, you can go to the next slide, Boo, if they, you want to look online. I think it's up there, yeah. All right. Romans 11, starting with verse 11. The, grant, the Gentiles are grafted in. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, in so much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith and belief. So you do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, from what was, is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have rejected, received mercy to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. All right. Spare you the conversation, but I asked him, said, did, did they say no? And they said, no, Marshall. They didn't say no. They said, hell no. So when he says, so he may have said whatever that their trespass salvation as it's come to the Gentiles to um, make them jealous. Jealousy sometimes is a bad thing, but it can be in here. Spinach, because look at Carrie, she's eating her spinach. She's such a good girl. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, I want her to eat her spinach too, so I'll compare them and contrast, but I make one. You'd be jealous, Jenna, of, of Carrie. She, she's doing what she should. Uh, we employ those strategies. So uh, I think the, the parable of workers that Jesus said is very apropos here, where he hired the last worker, and the worker that came in at the 5 o'clock hour was jealous of or complaining in that parable of the ones that came in early and did the heat of the day. The Gentiles are being called in at the 11th hour uh, here in this, this passage. And while the Jews labored building that foundation, in verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Full inclusion, what does that mean? 
um, a, a gathering in of a very, it seems to me to be saying that God is not done with the Israelites yet. There's still a future hope for them. Um, and that the Jews will be coming back to belief. If they do, it will greatly benefit the Gentiles. And that coming back is certainly what we want and what we should be praying for, for our Jewish friends. And Paul is saying, basically in these verses, it ain't over. It ain't over till the fat lady sings and the fat lady hadn't sung yet. Uh, it, it would take nothing less than the sovereign God to work in many of your Jewish friends and my Jewish friends, but that's exactly what Paul expects is going to happen, that they will, God will bring them back. You get that flavor in this whole passage. It's the very thing he thinks will happen. So don't cease to be praying for your Jewish friends or any loved ones, family, friends that aren't believers um, as... Uh, as the angel, God said to, the, to Sarah when she was barren, said to her, is there anything too hard for God? Uh, no, there is not. In verse 13, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, since as much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make some of them jealous and thus save them, some of them. Now, Paul can't save anyone, but God can. He's not saying he would save him, but he hopes that God will use him in that saying. He says, he says explicitly who he's talking to. I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Even though he was appointed to the Gentiles, even though he was the one appointed to reach them, he has not forgotten his fellow Jews. Uh, Paul wants the Gentiles to know that, look, I'm called to minister to you, but I have an emphatically pro-Israel ministry here in what I'm doing. I haven't forgotten them. Now, a lot of Jews would have thought that he's a traitor, a, a turncoat, and uh, have great, we see it obviously in Scripture, have great animosity. Um, verse uh, 15 is a parallel to verse 12 where Paul repeats himself. He does that a lot. When he thinks something's important, he'll you know, say it again. So in 15, he says, For if their rejection... And it's important here we know it's not God rejecting Israel. It's Israel rejecting Jesus uh, here. Uh, it's, he can't, you know, Jesus said himself, he came, in, or John said about Jesus, he came into his own and his own received him not. That's what's going on here. So if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, verse 15, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. So in these passages, we see a lot of back and forth, a kind of a wave, if you will, an oscillation where Paul is describing, you know, first the Jews believe, then the Gentiles predominantly believe, and then Paul is hinting that it will ping pong back one day where to the Jews again. And when we read this, you might get the feeling that there's a limited number of branches or, or you know, the, well, the, the camp. And that's, I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here in this horticultural analogy. Um, in fact, he seems to me to be hinting the very opposite of that. There will be a vast number of both Jew and Gentiles that will be grafted in is what I think Paul is saying and, and wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be a fulfillment of what he told Abraham, that you were blessed to be a blessing to a light to the, all the nations, to every tribe and people? Um, in the whole world, you will be blessed, he told Abraham. And world means Jew and Gentile, uh, every tribe and nation. And I think that's what he's saying in verse 15 where he says, uh, the words, he uses those words, reconciliation reconciliation of the world in other words god's grace is not only the past not only the present but future as well uh, we ain't seen nothing yet perhaps is what paul is saying and the more god blesses the jews the more the gentiles are blessed because of it is the tone here so we like paul should be cheering the jews on um, 
any, so many in history, as you know, the Paul, people criticize Paul's words as being anti-Semitic. It is anything but that. Uh, he is uh, recognizing here that their blessings are the basis of our blessings as Gentiles. So verse 16, it says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul is pulling that idea from Numbers 15. Uh, this, the, the first fruits of dough refer to the believing remnant, or Israel. And that metaphor is completely different following another metaphor, that of the root and the branches. And I think that the root represents the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's, he's the, the vine, we are the branches. Uh, whether Jew or Gentile, if they're holy, they're abiding in Christ who is the root. And then in verse 17, he's going to be given the analogy of the olive tree. Now, anyone literate in the Bible in those days, I know a lot of y'all are very literate, even as I was getting ready here, I hear y'all talking about chiasms, chiactic structures. So this is a generally very illiterate, a very literate crowd. But in that day, anybody would know when he starts talking about an olive tree that would think back to the prophets. The olive tree illustration was used by Haggai, Habakkuk. It's all through the Old Testament. And he says in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, you being um, the, um, Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Uh, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, the Gentiles have, and we, I presume we're all Gentiles in here. I don't, there may be some that are Jews. We inherit all the, um, all that's totally foreign to us and that we knew nothing about. Um, we are truly drinking from wells we didn't dig as Gentiles. Uh, we have all the benefits of um, the salvation that came and the foundations laid. And we should remember that our roots and that Israel is our rich heritage. And we're being grafted in by sheer grace. And a, a correct understanding of that grace should lead to our humility, not arrogance and pride, Paul says. So... In 19, continuing with the passage, he says, Then you'll say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Gentiles will say that. And that's true. They were broken off, talking about the Jews, because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Uh, so I love this verse. Uh, 22, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided that you continue in faith or continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Now, this is a very sober warning to us today, uh, believing Gentiles. Throughout this letter, Paul has warned here and there, uh, peppered in that we are not to have the attitude of these Jews uh, that now I'm saved, that I'm, uh, or this this whole idea that now that I'm saved, I'm free, um, I can be loosey goosey about my sin, and um, you know we think well, we we can't lose our salvation, and that's true, but there's there's so many passages where Paul says elsewhere. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and even in verse 20 here, Paul says we should fear and be humble. Think of the parable of the soils that Jesus had, uh, that many would fall away in the cares of the world and all that. Jesus, consistent with Paul, of course, or vice versa, um, gave warnings about that. It's good to note that all of Israel was brought out of Egypt. So they passed through the sea. They were 
liberated from bondage, but the bulk of them died in the desert out of unbelief. So in the same way as Gentile Christians can suffer the same fate if they, if they dwell in unbelief. Yep. So it's, it's a warning. So that, that whole that's, episode is a warning to us as well. That's a, that's a great example. There's so many. Um, uh, John in his epistles, you know, where he said some of them went away from us because they never were for us, with us. And essentially, that's, I, th- I think that's where we are. We, um, if, if we're truly elect, we won't lose our salvation, obviously. But that's why God says to work it out in fear and trembling. They were never of us. If we're proven that we were never of Christ if we walk away from the faith, right? And look at, look at his uh, verse 22, provided. That's a provisional. You continue in his kindness. So those who endure to the end will be saved. Um, so why were the smug Jews being cut off? He says here, because of their unbelief. So if these comments make you question your salvation, I want to reiterate something I said last time I was here. Um, well, first of all, before I do that, um, Instead of asking, well, what I said is, instead of asking the question, am I elect, ask the question, that's the wrong question, ask, do I believe? That's the key, is believing in Christ. Now, anytime we sin presumptuously, we are exhibiting unbelief, are we not? So there should be a pattern where our sin, particularly presumptuous sins, bother us more and more as we go forward. Uh, when we do fail, we have an advocate with the Father, of course. But it should really bother us. And if it doesn't, that's very concerning. It should be to us. But as we grow and our faith deepens, hopefully and experientially, that'll happen less. So I was very convicted this week, just thinking back to uh, who, I can't remember the character that said it to Jesus, but Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We cannot pray that often enough. I think every day that's a good prayer for us to go. Is Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We all have a bit of it. And that's one of the reasons the Lord's Day is to drill it back into us. Um, remind us and, and strengthen us today when we take the supper. Lord, help me believe more. So these verses teach us, teach us that God is both kind and severe. Both are inherent in his character and unchanging character. But this is very contrary to what you might hear today where God is all love and kind and totally beneficent to his people. Uh, He would never judge anyone. Uh, And thankfully, that is not reality. He does and will. Uh, In fact, when we hear you hear the phrase of Christ's second return, called that great and terrible day of the Lord. I, I like, to me that means it, for us believers, it's going to be great. But for those that aren't believers, it's going to be terrible, right? There is a kindness and a severity, and it's very, um, very indicative when you think about the two comings of Christ, the two advents. The first advent, Jesus says, I did not come to condemn, but I... And the second time he comes, he will come as judge. It's a very different contrast there. And that's what Paul is saying here. Note the kindness and severity of God. Uh, for those that don't believe, there will be wrath and fury, as he said in, I think, Romans 2. Verse 23, uh, continuing on, he said, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power, talking about the Jews, for God has the power to graft them, graft them in again. If he can bring the, the Gentiles in, regrafting the Jews back in, is it going to be a piece of cake for, for God is what he's saying here, I think. Um, all right, verse 25, let's talk about the... I'm wondering why um, Paul um, chooses the word kindness. The word what? Um, I'm wondering why Paul chooses the word kindness. Now he could have, like, 
you know, I was thinking he could have chosen to use, you know, love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, any of those things. But out of all those attributes of God, you know, he chooses kindness. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. You know, Where's my all... resident Greek? What does the word kindness uh, in the Greek mean there, Bill? Do you know? Hmm? It means kindness. <laughs> okay. I don't know why Paul chose that word, frankly, but it, it's, I think it's very, very much a synonym of all those adjectives you use. Um, but as it, in great contrast to severity, the very opposite, whatever that means, it's the opposite. Um, that's a good, good thing to ponder on. You can't speak here without a mic. Okay. The, let me see if I can remember my thought. Um, the, um, I forgot. What does kindness mean? Well, it's, it's, it's the opposite of selfishness and pride. And when he talks about God, He's talking about it. It was God's kindness. It wasn't what I did. So that may be part of it. Yep. In um, in verse, tw- oh, somebody else. While the mic's going, we're going to be looking at verse twenty-five and talk about the word mystery here in a sec. Yes, Bill. Well, it's it's a it is a substantive, and it just simply. Uh, our kindness is that that's right it's exactly as it is it's almost uh it doesn't say grace it says kindness uh and i think when you're being kind to somebody as opposed to being severe to them i think the contrast is perfect think about that Mm. you got severity on one side you got kind they're opposite yes yep all right Right, Paul says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't you, want you, the hearers of this letter, to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial pardoning has come to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Um, when Paul uses the word mystery here, it's not like an Agatha Christie novel or something. I think he's using it in a way, and he's not using it in a way like he doesn't know what's going to happen or or that we can't know. Again, again, he's pulling back the curtain. For Paul, I think it's an open secret that he's, that sounds kind of oxymoronic, like jumbo shrimp, but it's a secret, but it's open. He's revealed it. He's revealing it to it. God is showing us what he's pulling back the curtain. Something once concealed is now revealed. Um, It's something we wouldn't understand unless God spelled it out for us. I think it's the idea here and revealed it to us in his word. Um, God's grace will always be a mystery to fallen man. I mean, think back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. um, It was probably very surprising to Adam, perhaps. I think it would have been that he, he wasn't immediately snuffed out because God said, you eat this, you will surely die. Um, at that point, forgiveness was not a category yet. Nobody had ever sinned, and he had no reason to expect forgiveness. In fact, God could have snuffed him out, and you couldn't say a thing about it to God's character. He, he, yes, praise God, he's just. He, he is righteous. He will always. He hates sin. He could have totally wiped him out and been very justified in doing that, if I could use that word. Um, but no, he, he surprised them with, with grace. Grace is always a surprise, or we shouldn't expect it. It's, it, it wouldn't be grace or mercy if it was, were something he was obligated to do. And in this way, verse 26, all Israel will be saved, that is written. And then he quotes Isaiah 59 and 27. Uh, isn't it amazing how often the New Testament writers used what was their Bible the Old Testament, they were, you might say they were very good Bereans. Uh, and he quotes, the deliverer will come from Zion. And that's, that's from Isaiah. And this will be my covenant with them. I will take, when I take away their sins. 
So a lot of ink has been spilled in verse 26 um, over the phrase, all Israel. What does that mean? Kyle went over a little last time, but, and there are a lot of views, but here are the three dominant ones that I would summarize. These are the three. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because in some ways it's, it's getting in the weeds, but first is the uh, dispensational slant where uh, Israel... Uh, you have the church, Israel, you know, the time of the Old Testament, and then the church age or the parentheses where God starts dealing now with the church because the Jews reflected. And um, so uh, that view, I think, is I certainly came from that background. I'm sure many, if not most of y'all, were once, or like me, a recovering dispensationalist, perhaps. Um, but after the appointed number of um, Gentiles are brought in, God will then resume his plan for ethnic Israel and bring in a mass number, if, uh, if not all the Jews, before the consummation. And they have a lot of train schedules of how the time and that's going to event. We won't get into that this morning. But th- there's the dispensational view. The other two predominant views uh, that re- many reformers embrace is what uh, well, the, the dispensationalists have what we sometimes refer to as a replacement theology. The church replaced Israel. Reformed view is more what we would call a, um, not a grafted in, but a remnant view, a remnant theology, whereby, um, oh, and the second view is, predominant view, is that all Israel means there'll be a future mass scale conversion of all the ethnic Jews. Um, that people in the reform camp, these names will sound familiar, that take this view, John Murray, Charles Hodge, Gerdotis Voss, Cornelius Venema, just to name a few. Uh, most of these um, people have a post-millennial eschatology. Um, well, not all, actually. Um, um, Voss is uh, an exception there. He was an amillennial. I'm a lineal He was an amil guy, which of course is a subset of post mill. And anyway, the third predominant view of what all Israel means is all elect Jews and Gentiles. And they're both elect Jews and Gentiles brought into the vine throughout all of redemptive history, past, present, and future. Um, a most notable proponent of this view is none other than John Calvin. So, you're in good company with there. And uh, another one is our relative neighbor, O. Palmer Robinson. Did y'all know that Dr. Robinson actually lives in Winston-Salem? Uh, We've got to get him here sometime. I keep thinking I'm going to try to get him to come to teach us. Um, I think he's going to a PCA church over there. But anyway, uh, Dr. Robinson takes that view. And so most reformers are in one of the... But there are other views and... Uh, I personally think that last view is probably the way it is, uh, where both Jew and Gentile are running concurrently throughout all redeemed history, and some Jews are, uh, in every age, there's a remnant. God has his remnant while well, he's getting that. Can you repeat what the third view was? You said what it was. I didn't understand it. Yeah, it's the view that, what I just said, that all there, there's a remnant from past present and future, every age has elect of both Jew and Gentile, both in, for example, in, um, think about what we've been reading at Sunday night. Joshua, in those times, I mean, Israel was obeying, things were going very swimmingly, right? It was just gloriously, they were very obedient. There would have been Jews and Gentiles, but Think of the Jews in that period that were apostate, that did not believe. Even though the mass majority of them were walking with God and obeying God. Um, same thing um, in David's era. There, there were still believers, or, or not non-believers, in that glorious age of David. At the same time, though, in contrast, if you look at Judges, where we're reading it, that period was down, down, down. They, they were totally un disobedient, and yet there probably, there was a remnant there of believers. A remnant is believers, that are true believers. 
Yes. Yeah, the, right, for, for the sake of the recording. The, the remnant were true believers, whether Jew or Gentile, um, in, in all eras. That view, that view is that they both pass today and in the future. God will always have his remnant of believers, whether Jew or Gentile. And... Uh, that, that view resonates with me, but then who am I to disagree with Voss? And, I mean, it's, it's, uh, in some ways, it's kind of like all eschatology. It's, it's, a, uh, it's important, and, and there is a right view that what Paul was saying here, but there, they, you know, I listen to all these, some of these guys, and they parse out the Greek that I don't know. You know, it's, it's uh, um, what, what is clear, though, is that God's word, he says, going back to Romans 9, he says, it's not as though God had failed Israel. God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Um, so let's move on in 28. Um, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That's kind of a strange phrase. I think your sake means for the Gentile's sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For you at one time uh, were disobedient, uh, you, you Gentiles. Remember he's told you earlier, he's talking to the Gentiles. But um, you now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that mercy may be shown to you they may also now receive mercy. I love verse 32. It kind of wraps up the first two and a half chapters, three and a half chapters of Romans. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy. Doesn't that take you back to the first two chapters? He began this book in his thesis statement addressing Jew and Gentile and spent those chapters how God consigned all to disobedience. Um, in chapter 5 as well, we're all in Adam, we're all fallen and stand condemned before God. And that's the idea here in that verse, I think, in Romans. Um, so, I think one of the themes and one of the takeaways of these passages is that God's salvation is by grace, not race. He's talking to both, both peoples. It's always, it has nothing to do with race, but it has to do only with the grace of God. He's been tearing down that wall for the whole book. That wall, of, that dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Um, it, it, Pre-Christ, they had to look to Christ through the types and shadows of the prophets. And, and now the lights are totally on. The furniture's still there. It's the same, but we can see it now more clearly. The mystery has been unpacked and revealed. It, and it was always the plan to graft in the Gentiles. It was always God's plan to bring them in. It's not, he's not doing anything that new. In fact, um, remember before uh, Abraham was a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was out worshiping the moon somewhere in the land of Nod. What was it? Ur. I, I get that confused with some, something I read in my kids a long time ago. Anyway, he was in Ur. Uh, he was a, a Gentile. Noah was a Gentile. Um, Rahab, Naaman. There are so many here. I'm a, a Gentile here in Greensboro in 2024. Many of you are Gentiles brought in. So now we come to the end of this section of the letter in chapter 11. And you may recall in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, it was this glorious doxology of the promises of God. And Paul took us to the summit with his great exclamation of all these great promises. And then he took us down to the depths. I'm so sad for my fellow people, uh, Jews and uh, from the heights of joy to the depths of despair, you would think if you turn into chapter 9. But he had to address some important issues in these two chapters of the relation of them then and now. And, and we have similar issues today, of course, division 
is certainly alive and well in our day and time. Maybe not with us Jew and Gentile, but, um, but yeah, I mean, still even Jew and Gentile, certainly fairly recently with the Holocaust. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, patterns there. But in these last three chapters that we've been in, 9 through 11, we see how God is totally sovereign over orchestrating like a conductor all of the history, redemptive history, bringing his people for the good of his people uh, to the glory of his marvelous grace. So before we read his... uh, Glorious doxology. He's coming back again with great optimism, like he had at the end of chapter 8. He's going to end this section with a glorious doxology. But before we do, I think Ephesians 2, in another letter he wrote to another church, he sums up what he's been saying through 9-11. And I want us to read that, because I think this is a perfect, summation of what Paul is trying to teach the people in Rome. Let's go to, if you want to look in your Bibles, go to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And forgive me for talking so fast. I'm, <clears throat> I want to get done with this and have a little room for questions before I run off the, need to run off at 10 o'clock to, with the kids. But in, in Ephesians 2, listen to this and think about Romans 9 through 11 when Paul says in these verses, And I have it in red because it's not our text today, but it's so apropos. Paul says to them, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews called them the uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you, in other words, you Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now, one of those great buts in the Bible, but now in Christ Jesus, you, in other words, you Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our, our, Jew and Gentile, peace, who has made us, us Jews and Gentiles, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might recreate in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us, both Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and that would be the Gentiles, And peace to those who were near, that is, the Jews. For through him, Christ, we, that is, Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then verse 19, so then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's the root that he's alluding to, the foundation of the prophets. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, that is you Gentiles along with the Jews, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Um, and then we come to the doxology, which this was a letter, so he couldn't be shouting, but I'm sure he used all caps in his letter, if, whatever the equivalent was back then. Oh, the depths. And, and this, is, this is kind of alluding to this was a mystery, open secret revealed. Paul exclaims, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? That, again, comes, he's pulling from Isaiah 40 when he says that. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You may recognize that as Elihu from Job. You know, it's where Paul pulled that from. For to him, and 
For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So next week, we're going to shift from orthodoxy doctrine and um, the indicative to orthopraxy, the imperative, and how, how then should we live. But uh, I won't be here next week, but I want you to look at the first verse in chapter 12. Um, I, in the ESV, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I love the way the NIV says, in view of God's mercies. In other words, now that we're going to how to live, don't forget what we just talked about. In view of what we just talked about, the mercies of God. You can't forget that as you look at what we should do. Always keep in mind the mercies of God, Paul says. I think. So anyway, um, that's, uh, I think DeWitt is up next week. And, um, oh, at the very end of Romans, um, I'll be back with you in April. But in, uh, in May, our last class, we're going to have some fun. I'm going to do Bible or Romans Jeopardy. And I think I'm going to divide it men and women, maybe men on one side. So anyway, that should be fun um, in, to conclude and review our, uh, our study of this wonderful book. All right, let me pray, and then I have maybe five minutes. We can have questions, and y'all can fellowship. Um, thanks for bearing with me and my fast talking this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful section of Romans. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a thankful heart for our heritage, uh, for the Jewish people, uh, that you would bring them, Lord, to yourself. Um, and Lord, give us the grace to believe. And Lord, we do believe your promises, Lord. Help our unbelief. We thank you that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, go with us now in fellowship and worship in the hearing of the word that we would not only believe it, but obey it. And by your grace, help us, Lord. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Hi, yeah, I wanted to circle back to that section 11 through 14 where Paul talks about the Jews becoming jealous, and particularly in verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to, to jealousy them which are my flesh, I might save some of them. So it seems like that's a big drive in Paul's ministry or distinction, and you don't hear much about that these days unless you talk to Stephen Atkinson and or you look back to the 19th century uh, Pastor Machine in, in Scotland um, but when we look at that I mean how should that influence preaching these days and Christian living these days uh, outreach to Jews these days are we missing something or uh, it seems like that should be, we should be pondering that verse because the other verse we looked at in more detail, the, you know, all Israel, what does that mean? You know, that's much discussed, but then I don't see this being discussed as much. So I don't know if you have an answer for that, but I think it's something we should at least ponder. Yeah. What is in verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Well, what is, what is Paul up there? He, he, you know, he wants to do this. He, he wants to save the Jews. And it's, he's got a ministry goal and a strategy. And sh shouldn't we share that, that same goal and strategy? The essence and what of your does question, it look like? How, how can we make them jealous today? Is what the essence of your question, right? Or how should we make them jealous? Or how could we? Um, you're right. I don't have a direct answer except we should preach the gospel indiscriminately to everybody, uh, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, whatever. Bill has a thought on that. Oh. Uh, Patrick had a question. Patrick had a thought on that. Uh, it's actually not related to that, but I've been mulling over what um, Jacob asked about the, the kindness and severity portion. And I think that that's part of the key 
to this, um, at least that's, that's how I see it, is I don't, although those words tend to be opposites, um, I don't think that that's the experience that we have in Christ because there is no shelter from the Lord. There's only shelter in him. And so I think that that's the, the experience uh, of the same event is experienced differently. So I, I teach, when I teach shooting or things like that and talk about defensive shooting, I tell people that if someone was after my family, the person that's after my family is going to experience my extreme love. <clears throat> but they're going to experience that in the form of extreme violence. Mm-hmm. And my family in that same experience is going to experience my extreme love and my willingness to sacrifice everything on their behalf. It's the same event, but it's two different experiences for two different groups of people in that same event. And I think that's where the kindness and the severity of the Lord are embodied in that same thing. Is it's, it's the, he dwells in unapproachable light. It's the, the you know, to borrow from literature, the, the vampire is shriveled in the light. The trolls in the Lord of the Rings are shriveled by the light, but the coming of the dawn is the hope of those who are good in those stories. And I think that's resonant to things like this. Yep. Bill? Amen to that. Um, provoking, provoking the Jewish folks. I'm reminded of uh, my father-in-law right after the death of uh, mother-in-law. Came to the house, sat down. He'd been a uh, very hard man, and I did not know whether at all he would become ever a Christian. But he said this. He said, I wanted what you and your mother had. So, you can't give what you don't have any more than you can come back from where you haven't been. So, if we have this relationship with the Lord and we're around people, hopefully, they'll want it. Um, You know, I meant to pray for Stephen Atkinson's ministry when I conclude, I forgot, but that's we obviously one of the ways we should not be waxing our prayer for the Jewish people and for ministries like Stephen's. Um, right, that's my cue. I got to go. Um, yeah, y'all can still talk. But thank you. I don't normally really laugh.